2. Diary of a Prostitute Who Loved Much I have learned something powerful and simple. There is a love that transcends worthlessness and the sinful deeds done in darkness. This is what I shout now, and I am forever changed in light of that love. Yet love's opposite, lust, wielded its terrible power over me for too many years. Men had two faces toward me. When others, particularly their wives, were not looking, their eyes held lust. When onlookers surrounded them, they carried disgust. I know both looks well. Lust and disgust. They had become my companions many years on the street. If I allowed them to permeate my heart, I would feel like dying nearly every moment. But I had to continue on. The lust of men had no end, and it paid me well if you want to know the stark truth. Would you laugh if I told you my dreams as a little girl? Would you poke fun at my ambitions? What I wanted was so desperately simple. A home, a husband, a passel of children. One night changed all that. The air was warm, scented sweet by opening blossoms. Spring intoxicated me at fifteen, enticing me to walk outside in the cool evening so I could think, away from the constant bickering of my siblings. On the ridge above my village I felt invincible, as if I could command the moon and tell the stars to dance. I sat on a large boulder that night and let out the breath I had been holding all day long. Ah, sweet shalom, just me and the rising moon in a circle of rare quiet. I was accustomed to telling God about everything he already knew. I wondered if I bothered the Almighty by prattling on. But then I reasoned if I had children, I would stare rapt at them, the miracle of who they were, and long to hear their dreams and wonderings. So perhaps God sat rapt in the heavens as I declared my frustration, detailed my future, and told him of the petty frustrations of my day. I would like to know what you have for me next, I said to the breeze. Will my husband have workman hands? Will he be taller than me? Will he love me? A bird answered back, but nothing more. And then, a rustle. From the corner of my vision, I saw a man. He strode toward me in sandaled feet, earthen-colored cloak. He wore a beard and a bemused look. Seeking a husband, I hear? The man's tone hinted at domination, not invitation. I turned inward, searching to find the words to get me out of this situation. But he reached for me, grabbed my arm, and clenched my flesh in his strong hand. He ripped hair from its roots until my eyes screamed tears. What I would not give for one of my brothers to find me, to rescue me. But no such rescue came. I watched the moon, concentrated on the stars, begged the heavens to come down upon us. But the sky did not fall for me. The man sneered when he stood up, tall, looming. The moon haloed his head while I wept. In his hand, he held a fistful of hair. You will not tell a soul, he said. I kill those who tell. And I believed him. I limped back home in the dead of night, from the place of my undoing to the place I would exile myself from. I wondered if my parents or brothers or sisters had searched for me. But since they knew my habits of wandering in the evenings, I hoped that perhaps they forgot about me 
and would be drunk with sleep when I returned. I tiptoed around their sleeping forms, carefully gathering my things. I refused to bring shame upon this house. There were no secrets in this village. Like hidden sin, they bubble to the surface every time. Someday, the dawn of daylight would expose this secret for all its ugly shame. Because of one man's act, I would be rendered a harlot, certainly not a virgin who could be given in marriage. Every single dream collapsed as I paused to watch my family sleep. I would never have this oasis of calm, never hear the snoring of my husband, the sighing of my firstborn, the tossing and turning of my thirdborn. I traveled far away from my village, then found someone to shave my head. There I mourned my patchy skull. But even more than that, I lamented with sackcloth and ashes the life I would never experience. I subsisted on the outskirts of benevolent farmers' fields, gleaning like Ruth, barely eating, scarcely surviving. As my hair grew back, I noticed that look of lust in the eyes of several men in the village. I knew now I was a washed-out rag, good for nothing but to glean and long for food. But I might as well eat. I might as well have some sort of home. So I exchanged my already used body for money. The first time felt like agony, but I kept my tears bottled inside. The second time I gritted my teeth. The third time I closed my eyes, trying to imagine the moon, the stars, only to remember that night and shudder inside myself. The fourth time I made a choice. I accepted my lot, the reason perhaps that God placed me on this earth. I would have to choose a different dream now, to satisfy the hunger of many men, not one, and be paid for my work handsomely. From that point onward, I deadened my heart. I pretended I never wanted a family, believed I was meant for something else, a service men needed, I reasoned. I play-acted my way through each encounter, feigning interest, alluring with my eyes, though I saw revulsion in theirs. I never kissed those men, never gave them my soul, my heart. When a religious leader curried my services, I dared to say the words that merited a firm slap. We are not unlike each other, I told him. You pretend to be religiously pious, but instead pay a prostitute to quell your urges. I pretend to be interested in you, but instead I count the money you will give me. You want power through your position. I have power because of mine. I held sway over many, many men, a strange sort of payback I enjoyed. I could, with one word, cut down a reputation so painstakingly built. Yes, this power I relished. The dance of prostitution continued many years. I made my money, created a home for myself with fine linens, food for a queen, and perfumes that scented my bedding. I found it to be a fitting joke now, the way men judged me publicly yet wanted me privately. I coddled the power of my position and convinced myself I did have the life I always dreamed of. Except as I grew older by the years, I would no longer be considered pretty. My livelihood hung in a terrible balance, threatened by age and the toll this life took upon my weathered face, my only insurance, the vial of wildly expensive perfume that hung between my breasts. Some nights after I completed my work, 
I would climb the ridge beyond our village, stare at the same moon and stars, and be fifteen years young and blessedly unviolated, full of dreams of family, of joyful life, of a clean heart. I gave these terrible wishes to the wind on those evenings, with an ache that grew deeper than my comfortable life. I would never, ever be whole, never clean, never pure, never accepted, certainly never forgiven. The tears would come slowly in those moments, and I would try not to give in to weeping. And then I would think, why not start over? Who says I cannot? I would pack up my house and transport myself to another village, only to be dissatisfied with gleaning. Men would find me. They would know whether I possessed powers over them, or perhaps they had heard rumors from other villages. I am not quite sure. But they dazzled me with denarii, and I relieved their urgent needs. I moved to Nain several Sabbaths ago, in hopes of a new start, naively perhaps. The money I saved from the last village kept me in food and clothing. I survived without giving my body in service, and I refrained from dipping into my perfume, keeping a modest lifestyle. My head began to clear. Perhaps, I thought, I could make my way without selling my body. But the mornings brought hunger. Would I have to sell the perfume for food, for livelihood? It represented all the tears I would not allow myself to cry, enslaved at the hands of hungry men. I ventured to the central part of Nain in search of figs, coins gripped tightly in my left hand. My stomach rumbled. In the market, the kindly old man known as Elkana greeted me, eyes dancing. And how are you today, ma'am? Part of me wanted to tell him just how tired I was, how desperately hungry I felt, but instead I answered, All is well, all is well. He handed me four figs and winked. I can only pay you for three. Consider it my tithe, he said. You need to eat more, and I cannot be the reason your bones shut from your cheeks. I wanted to hug him, but I kept my distance, telling myself not to tear up at his kindness. I wondered if he knew my secret prostitution and was only being nice to me for this sake. You know what I have heard. He touched my arm. I jerked backwards. He knew? He lifted his hands heavenward in surrender. I am sorry, he said. I did not mean to startle. I am new here, I told Elkana, and I do not know who to trust. He laughed. I am harmless and quite withered. He showed me his right hand curled inward, gnarled by life and crippling disease. I have heard of a man who heals hands like mine. He seems to love outcasts, those our little society shuns, and he is near. He looked through me in that moment, and I turned away. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the exorciser, the healer. Some say he is the Messiah. When he said the name Jesus, my heart leapt, but I said nothing. I believe he can heal this hand. Elkanah grabbed my attention, looking into my eyes, and any manner of broken heart. Impossible, I thought. Too many men, too many transactions, too much disease and weariness. I thanked the kind man and made my way toward my home. On the left a crowd formed, 
dust twirling beneath shuffling feet. In the midst of this crowd stood a man, in sandals, in an earthen cloak. At first I recoiled, remembering the night so many years before. Was he the same? Another man hiding despicable deeds beneath eloquent speech? I heard a voice from the crowd say, Tell us more, Jesus. Jesus, the one who mended broken hearts. I skirted along the side of the crowd, as I am used to doing, and listened to his words. To what can I compare the people of this generation? How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you did not dance, so we played funeral songs and you did not weep. What did Jesus mean? Perhaps he spoke about expectations unmet, or not reacting as we should in the proper context. Was I like one of those children, playing wedding and funeral songs, hoping for a perfect reaction? The muffle of voices gave way to the words of Jesus again. For John the Baptist did not spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he is possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. I had heard of this John who baptized, to some a wild man, to others a saint. To the religious men I have known he was the former, to the working men the latter. But it was the name of Jesus that stopped me, the thought of him befriending tax collectors and other sinners. Why would a man of God befriend a tax collector? If this were true, would I qualify as other sinners? The reputation of tax collectors far exceeded that of a prostitute. At least we provided a service for money freely given, not stolen. If this Jesus could befriend thieves, would he be my friend too? And could he forgive all I had done? I followed Jesus several days, gleaning his teachings, always, always on the edge of the crowd, my face veiled. My heart hungered for his words, more than I had lusted after security and the wealth that came from giving myself away. I needed to know that what he said was true. Did he really welcome those who felt unworthy? Or those who had lived in sin for a lifetime, so long they figured they were beyond the reach of forgiveness? On the Sabbath, I watched as my elderly friend Elkanah dared to approach Jesus at the synagogue. I held my breath, kept myself as inconspicuous as I could. But I could not hear what passed between them, so I dared to move closer. The religious teachers argued with Jesus about the law and what was appropriate to perform on the Sabbath. Elkanah looked nearly angelic as he stood at a slight distance from Jesus, waiting to discover what the healer would do, while his hand curled inward. Elkanah turned and saw me. He winked. I shuddered, shrunk away, until I heard the voice of Jesus. Come and stand in front of everyone, he told Elkanah. He obeyed. Jesus looked at the religious leaders, one of whom I had known many times upon my bed. I pulled the veil still tighter over my face. I have a question for you, Jesus said. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? 
I wanted someone to answer, but no one did. Silence reigned. Jesus gave Elkanah a kindly look that also held exasperation. He looked hard at each of the men accusing him, then redirected his attention back at Elkanah. Hold out your hand, he told my friend. Elkanah extended his withered hand. It trembled as he did so. Jesus touched the gnarled fist. His eyes held tears, but they smiled too. In an instant, the withered hand opened up like a flower under the springtime sun. Elkanah wept and laughed and danced and flexed his hand, thrusting it skyward. He thanked Jesus, thanked the Almighty, laughing all the way to me. He pointed to his hand, marveling at the restoration. This is how he changes lives, Elkanah said, from withered to free. I wish that freedom for you. I let the tears fall at the beauty of my friend's restored hand, and I continued to follow Jesus and his gaggle of disciples for many days, all the while asking God if he could show me, somehow, if a life such as mine could be restored like that. As many reclined to hear him teach on a hillside, I listened too. He turned my way while he spoke and said these words into my soul, a direct answer to my prayer days earlier. He said, God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. How could that be? I had known far too many nights when I had baptized the hillsides with my tears, but I knew few days of laughter. And yet, every time I heard Jesus speak, I felt that joy might become a possibility for me. Even me. He continued speaking, and with each phrase, hope took hold of my heart. I dared to believe there could be a clean start, forgiveness. And as I entertained that wild thought, Jesus said, Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Then my hope died. I could not forgive that now faceless man who haunted my nightmares and stole my dreams. He did not deserve my forgiveness. He deserved. With that, I looked at my hands, the hands that caressed too many men to count, who had taken their money in exchange for sin. Not only had I transgressed in the sheer act of fornication, but I had encouraged the same sin in other men. The weight of all that dirtiness, all that shame covered me in that moment. I would never be clean of it. It was the sort of filth one washes away, only to realize the water used to clean had also been muddy. Never to be set free. Never understand forgiveness. Elkanah, he was a kind man with a withered hand, who most likely deserved his healing. But me? I deserved every haughty look, every judgmental sentence, every condemnation. Forgiveness? No. Still, Jesus spoke of John the Baptist and repentance, of turning away from your sinful lifestyle, of asking for a fresh start. In the quiet of my home that night, I mulled over all the words I heard Jesus say. I contemplated the miracles I witnessed, and as I did, I fell to the floor, utterly weighted down by my sins. They felt like a boulder pinning me to the earth. I counted each sin, then recounted them in detail before God, spilling out all my unworthiness, my failures, my anger. Why did that man do that to me? 
I asked God, hiccuping between sobs. I heard no answer, but with each declaration, I felt peace that perhaps God had a bigger plan, that he could trump what others had done to me and renew it somehow. I brought my withered, incapable life before God in that down-on-the-ground moment. Would you restore my life as you renewed the vigor of Elkanah's hand? I cannot explain what happened next, except that my soul blossomed. The shame vanished. The fear gone. The dirtiness cleansed. The anger dissipated. I remembered the words of King David about God being my shepherd, preparing a feast in the presence of those who despised me. As I lapped in breaths of freedom air, I felt the cup of my life overflow in gratitude. I finally understood the words of King David when he wrote, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Though I was not royalty or worthy of an anointing, the feeling of it overwhelmed me. I could nearly smell the oil as cleansing poured over my head, over my eyes, my throat, heart. God of heaven's armies, I prayed, thank you for welcoming me into your home like a desired and wanted child. I stood on shaky legs. As night descended, I began to understand Jesus' words about forgiveness because I absolutely experienced it. And in light of that, I found that the possibility to forgive others now lived in my heart. I brushed the dust from my face, hands, knees, and began to dance, and cry, and sing. I ran to the outskirts of Nain under a full moon, and twirled under its shadow a free woman, so blessedly alive it nearly scared me to death. But one thing I did know, Jesus ushered in this surprising change, and I would spend all my strength thanking him. I touched the flask of precious perfume I held for safekeeping, knowing what I must do. I would bless Jesus with everything I had, because he had become everything to me. He had given me life, and he deserved my sacrifice. What was two years' wages, what was any amount of money, next to a heart made clean? The next day, I discovered Jesus in a crowd. I wanted to rush at him then with my gift, but propriety and a hint of fear held me back. To my right, I heard one man, a Pharisee, clear his throat. The others turned to see him standing to the side, proud, tall, preening. Come to my home and eat, he said to Jesus. It sounded more like a command than invitation, and I sensed a hint of anger in his voice, muffled only by smiling lips. At a distance, I followed the crowd, orienting myself to the twists and turns of this part of the village, counting steps down crooked, dusty paths, until I noticed the home where Jesus entered. I knew better than to ask for entrance, for it would be denied to a woman of ill repute. I had long heard the whisperings around the other places I lived to know there is no small village, not even Nain, where my deeds and reputation could not follow. But I did not care, because once I saw Jesus reclining at the table, I became overwhelmed at his beauty and the revolution he had begun in my heart. I snuck into the crowded home, 
preferring to inch along the periphery, still afraid. That is, until he spoke. His voice resurrected my willpower, and I found him collapsing at his feet. I intended to anoint his feet with my perfume, but I found myself overtaken with emotion, and I wept. His feet, now unsandaled, were dirt-encrusted from the day's walk, and no one had cleaned them. My tears ran over the dust, eddying into tiny pools beneath his toes. If tears could clean such dirty feet, there was hope for an unclean woman like me. This I knew. Though earth-stained, I marveled at the beauty of his feet. They had taken him to people who had lost everything— their health, their hands, their livelihoods, their reputation. These feet brought him to Nain, to me. I could not help but do the thing no prostitute dares to do. I kissed his feet. I heard gasps, but I did not care. These beautiful feet deserved lavish affection. I wondered why no one else sat at the master's feet, blessing him with the same kiss, was no one else moved by the wonder of Jesus? I had left my expensive silks and linens at home, so I had nothing to cleanse his feet. But I did have my hair. I unbound my tresses to more guffaws, no doubt the wagging of heads at this indignity I committed. Unbinding hair made me naked in these men's eyes, no doubt a horrific scandal. I should have worried about committing such an audacious act amidst the holy, but all I could think about was Jesus' need for dried, clean feet, and my insatiable need to thank him for loving me. So I continued unhindered, grabbing fistfuls to smear away the caked-on mud. Jesus demanded nothing from me. He reclined, blessedly silent. He simply welcomed my adoration without expecting something in return, so unlike nearly every man I had known. The tension in the room thickened, I took the perfume and poured my security upon his feet. The room permeated the scent's brilliance and beauty. My worship, that perfume. My worthiness, my livelihood. The liquid that guaranteed my wealth. I kissed his now perfume-anointed feet. I worked with such fervor that I chose to forget about the stares of others. Until I looked up and the proud Pharisee glared at me shock and anger in his icy stare. I had humiliated him in front of Jesus, in his home no less. I stiffened, looked at my hands, nearly forgetting all that Jesus had done for me and in me. I felt five years old and foolish. But Jesus touched my hand as if to say, Wait, child. Jesus looked at Simon. I have something to say to you, he said. Go ahead, teacher, Simon glared at me again. A man loaned money to two people, five hundred pieces of silver to one and fifty pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? That beautiful, terrible, empowering word, forgave. I felt it pound in my heart, resurrecting my hope. Mine had been a five-hundred piece of silver life, to be sure. But Simon shifted. I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. His words sounded as if he did not want to say them, and he said them while looking through me. That is right, 
Jesus said. He turned, looked at me without lust, without disgust. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. In the company of Jesus' words, I came undone, again, because he allowed me an extreme privilege. He had anointed me with his healing when I knelt in the dust, and now I had anointed him. Would his cup overflow too? This Jesus who healed and loved and welcomed, he dignified my scented offering. How could this be so? Jesus touched a strand of my hair. I did not recoil. I remembered what the evil man ripped from my head, the raw patch of skin that screamed pain. So much shame that man forced onto me, and so much sin I committed in the aftermath. And yet, grace made Jesus talk to me, accepting my small offering. I had been unclean, unloved, unwanted, unworthy, but no longer. Jesus quieted the table. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Jesus looked at me intently and smiled. He released what I had formerly squelched. Potential, freedom, cleanness, hope. Your sins are forgiven, he reminded me. A clear declaration of the supernatural change that had happened as I groveled in the dust last night and spilled my story clear out. I stood. The tears continued down my face. I dropped the perfume flask, shattering it on the hardened earth. I felt the weight of the stares of the men in the room, but I did not allow their disgust to inform my worth. Jesus forgave me. Blessedly, shockingly so. He welcomed me into his house, a child well-loved. A furor erupted around the table. The men questioned among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Who indeed? He was God with human feet. Because of him, I became a woman forgiven much, and I would choose to love much. Not many men, but one, passionately for the rest of my life. Your faith has saved you, Jesus said as I neared the door. Go in shalom. And I did. My tears are dry now, and I sit under the moonlit night with joy reverberating through me. As stars light the sky, I remember another thing Jesus said to the crowds right after he spoke of forgiveness. Give and you will receive, he said. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. The Sacred Text When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him five hundred denarii and the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50 Walking it out the story of the sinful woman who anointed Jesus in the house of a Pharisee shows us yet another aspect of the true lover of our souls. In order to better understand the force of the narrative, imagine two children. One is a young boy raised in a strong religious home. His name is Simon. He's a diligent young lad, devoted to God and the Torah, law of Moses. Simon joins the party of the Pharisees, the most influential sect in Judaism separatists who carefully follow the food and purity laws of the Torah. They are deeply devoted to knowing, interpreting, and applying the law of Moses to the life of Israel. They are zealous about purifying the nation. Given their preoccupation with purity, the Pharisees will have nothing to do with sinful people. They view themselves as the experts at sin management. They become the self-appointed, self-anointed, self-righteous monitors of God's kingdom who distance themselves from anyone who practices sin. In their view, they belong to a special class of people, non-sinners, so they think anyway. The other child is a little girl, precious, innocent, and beautiful. But things go horribly wrong in her upbringing, and she ends up giving her body in exchange for money. She becomes a woman of the night, a prostitute, a harlot. Good Jews despise her. She's defiled and unclean the dregs of society. Neither child realizes it, but they will soon collide. One day they will meet as adults in the most surprising of circumstances, and as a result, one of their lives will change forever. That's the backdrop to this remarkable story. A Collision of Two Classes Scholars point out that Simon was relatively wealthy because he could host a large banquet in his home. Strikingly, the young prophet who reclined in Simon's home that day was the very God whom Simon and his friends had been trying to serve all their lives. Stop and consider that for a moment. 
The woman who entered Simon's home was the little girl who was once a precious, innocent, beautiful child. She was all grown up now, yet not so gracefully. No one had invited her in, yet she unabashedly entered the home of Simon the Pharisee, only to fall under the judgmental eye of his friends. In the first century world, people's homes weren't private as they now are in the modern West. A person could walk straight into someone's house unopposed, even if they were never invited. So it wasn't unusual for this woman to enter into Simon's home. The unusual aspect is her stature in society. Look at the contrast. The woman is a dirty prostitute, a common whore by social status, ritually impure and utterly contagious in her impurity. The home she's entered belongs to a so-called pure and clean Pharisee. She entered as an intruder, and a defiling one at that. Pure righteousness meets self-righteousness. We can presume that this woman had already heard Jesus teach. She discovered Jesus' whereabouts with the intent to anoint him as an act of gratitude. But when she entered Simon's home and saw the prophet up close and personal, she became overwhelmed. In the first century, people reclined on low couches at banquets, leaning on the left arm with their head toward the table and their bodies stretched away from it. So the woman didn't sit near the table. The unbinding of her hair must have horrified Simon and outraged his Pharisee friends. In the first century Jewish world, the act of a woman unbinding her hair in public bordered on scandalous. It would be similar to a woman going topless in public today. Men would deem it to be erotic. To attend someone's feet was a menial task, one that was usually assigned to a slave. Some scholars point out that she would have appeared to be fondling Jesus' feet, like a prostitute or a slave girl providing sexual favors. Either way, the Pharisees would have considered her actions at the table to be shamelessly erotic, socially awkward, and profoundly inappropriate. In that day, women wore tiny vials about the length of a finger, made of limestone or occasionally glass, containing perfume, pistic nard, that they carried on a leather thong around their necks. However, from the Greek word that Luke uses in this narrative, the perfume was probably contained in a long flask that the woman purchased with her prostitution income. It represented her livelihood, likely earned through giving nearly everything of herself to satisfy her client's sexual demands. To Simon's mind, the godly do not associate with the wicked. Hence why he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know that she's a sinner, and he wouldn't allow this shameful behavior and disgraceful act. It's significant that Jesus didn't stop her overt affection, and he never reproved her for it. The Lord knew exactly who she was, and he also knew exactly who Simon was. In fact, he perceived the very thoughts of the Pharisee. Pause and notice— in the eyes of the only perfect man who ever lived, this sinful woman loved God, and a self-righteous Pharisee judged God, as well as the person who lavishly loved him. Without realizing it, Simon and his friends criticized the very God they thought they were serving. A Prophet Indeed As always, Jesus kept his poise in the middle of awkward situations— on the one hand, he allowed a sinful woman to perform an outrageous act of affection in a very public manner. On the other, he observed a self-righteous Pharisee engaging in an outrageous act of judgment upon him. 
What Jesus said to Simon denuded the Pharisees' self-righteous delusion. After Jesus exposed Simon's serious breach of the laws of hospitality, Jesus dropped the bomb. Simon, this sinful woman loves me very much because she's been forgiven very much. But you love me very little because you believe you are beyond needing forgiveness. Because Jesus is a prophet, one who represents God, the implication was that Simon not only loved God little, but he barely knew him. And while Simon didn't approve of this woman, God didn't approve of Simon. You see, God doesn't approve of those who see themselves as part of the class of non-sinners. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 But the tax collectors stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. The lens of self-righteousness saw the woman's behavior as erotic, shameful, and sinful. The lens of true righteousness saw it as beautiful, sacred, and gracious. These two lenses still exist today, even among Christians. The Upside-Down Kingdom All throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ is shown to be the friend and defender of sinners. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. In this story, we find him to be eating, drinking, and befriending a female sinner. Jesus welcomed the tax collectors, the thieves, the prostitutes, and the adulterers into his kingdom. For this reason, the Lord consistently violated social taboos to reach out to those who the culture marginalized. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Economically, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Religiously, Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 34. And morally, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. But he leveled his severest critique to the religious, self-righteous, morally upright. See the Lord's bone-chilling rebukes to such people in Matthew 23. These self-righteous folks disqualified themselves from the kingdom of God, the kingdom they thought they were building through their outwardly pristine behavior. This truth is part of the astonishing reversal of the kingdom of God, and it goes against every expectation that the people of Israel had about what the world would look like when God's kingdom materialized on earth. No one expected that the kingdom would look like prostitutes forgiven, tax collectors received, adulterers rescued, divorcees honored, traitors absolved, each of them receiving a new life and a high place in God's house, all because of the amazing grace, unfailing mercy, and abundant redemption of Israel's true Messiah. Now, let's put a self-righteous Christian in that room with this woman, Simon, and God in flesh. What might that person ask or say? Lord, did she ask for forgiveness? I'm not sure she repented. I want to interrogate her to make sure she did. I did not hear her say she was sorry for committing such awful, heinous sins. I can never understand how someone could give their body for money. That is one of the worst sins a person can commit. Such words and thoughts can only come forth from those who have been captured by the spirit of a Pharisee. And we have not so learned Jesus Christ. 
the sober reality is that self-righteousness will bar many from the kingdom of God. Behold this woman, sinful like the rest of us, but perhaps in a different way. She chose to love Jesus at great cost to herself. She poured out her devotion and her economic livelihood upon him, unashamedly and outrageously, in the presence of self-righteous Pharisees. Luke closes the curtains on this scene with Jesus commending the woman, announcing that she has indeed been forgiven and that her faith has saved her. He then tells her to go in peace. What hope-filled, beautiful words for a woman who did not understand shalom in her daily life. Jesus did not imply that her actions earned forgiveness. They resulted from her forgiveness, and he pronounced aloud for all to hear what was already true. Her love became proof that she had already been forgiven. Her act of affection was her response to God's unfailing grace. Point. True faith is demonstrated when we allow ourselves to receive God's generous forgiveness in Christ, and the proof of that faith is love. What is more, faith brings forth peace. Notice that Jesus didn't invite this woman to be part of his apostolic band. No, she had to return to her life of conflict and tension, not as a prostitute, but as someone who used to be, and she had to find another way to earn income. But Jesus said to her, Go in peace, which literally means go into peace. Yes, her life wouldn't be easy right away, or maybe not at all. But she encountered the Prince of Peace, and he sent her on her way into peace. Indeed, salvation leads a person on the path of peace. Luke chapter 1, verse 79. So, love reveals faith, and faith brings forth peace. The gospel of the New Testament is highlighted in this scene. It doesn't matter how great your sins are. God's grace is big enough to forgive and cleanse them. Later in his gospel, Luke gives us two stories that Jesus told which underscore the insidious problem of self-righteousness. The prodigal son, Luke 15, and the Pharisee and tax collector, Luke 18. Christian therapist and professor Dr. Dan Allender once said, Self-righteousness is more decadent than the worst sexual sin. The story in Luke 7 underscores that point. Jesus and the Pharisees To better understand Simon and his friends, let's take a closer look at Jesus and his encounters with the Pharisees. One reason why Christ had so much conflict with the Pharisaical party is because they were committed to God's revelation in the Torah— but their interpretation of it had shifted radically. This became a problem because the Pharisees disdained any other interpretation of the Torah except their own. They also gave in to a strong strain of jealousy, making Jesus a target of their anger. Here are some examples of the conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees opposed John the Baptist and Jesus for their kingdom message. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7 the Pharisees opposed Jesus and his followers for their Sabbath observances. Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to give them a sign. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. The Pharisees opposed Jesus and his followers over hand-washing rituals. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. The Pharisees taught things that Jesus criticized as opposing God's will. Matthew chapter 16, Verses 6 and 12. 
The Pharisees had a righteousness that Jesus said was inadequate. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. The Pharisees opposed Jesus and his followers for eating with the wrong people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. The Pharisees had a different practice of fasting. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons in league with Satan. Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. The Pharisees tested Jesus often. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 3, and John chapter 8, verse 6. The Pharisees wanted Jesus put away, and Jesus was aware of it. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. The Pharisees were denounced by Jesus for being hypocrites. Matthew 23. Five Important Lessons All told, there are five big lessons we can glean from this story. 1. You will never know if self-righteousness lurks in your heart until you see someone you regard as sinful, audaciously loving Jesus. How you react to that situation will uncover what's deep within your heart. 2. Self-righteousness will disqualify you from the kingdom of God. Serving God as Simon performed his entire life doesn't score brownie points with the Almighty. Humility and treating others the way you want to be treated in all circumstances is what Jesus is after. This, in fact, fulfills the entire law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. 3. It doesn't matter what you've done or how bad you've failed. Jesus Christ is bigger than all your foul-ups, and His mercy and grace loom larger than any sin you've ever committed. 4. Ultimately, your God is after love. Beyond everything else, even service, He wishes to be loved. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 38. You are His beloved. 5. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, if you deem yourself to be part of the class called non-sinners and judge those who are not like you, then you're dangerously out of favor with God. We all should be impressed by the sinful woman. She embodies the depths of fallen humanity. Yet Jesus loved her and forgave her. And despite her unbecoming life, she knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners, which means that he was her friend. So, the next time you feel condemnation over your past sins, mistakes, and failures, remember this. A sinful woman extravagantly loved the God of glory, your Lord, in the house of a Pharisee. And he was not ashamed of her. Neither is he ashamed of you. You are his beloved child, so take your rightful place and rest joyfully there. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11.